All right, we're in the book of Haggai. We will finish the book of Haggai today. Very short book. God delivers four words through the prophet Haggai to the remnant of Judah. And those four words were delivered over a four-month period. And actually, the last two of those words came on the same day in the fourth month. So this is the fourth and final time the word of the Lord comes to Haggai the prophet. And in his final address, the Lord instructs Haggai to speak to Zerubbabel, the governor of Judah. And God is giving Zerubbabel a prophetic overview, a very brief one, but a very powerful and important one. A prophetic overview of what will take place in the future. God is also giving assurance that the promises made to Israel, to David, and to all of God's people throughout the ages, including us, will be fulfilled. And finally, God reassures Zerubbabel that he is precious, that he is chosen, and that God will use him to accomplish his divine purpose. So Haggai chapter 2, verses 20 through 23. And again, the word of the Lord came to Haggai on the 24th day of the month, saying, Speak to Zerubbabel, governor of Judah, saying, I will shake heaven and earth. I will overthrow the throne of kingdoms. I will destroy the strength of the Gentile kingdoms. I will overthrow the chariots and those who ride in them, the horses and their riders shall come down, every one by the sword of his brother. In that day, says the Lord of hosts, I will take you, Zerubbabel, my servant, the son of Shealtiel, says the Lord, and will make you like a signet ring, for I have chosen you, says the Lord of hosts. This is the word of the Lord. Father in heaven, we ask that you would, by your Holy Spirit today, Illuminate your word in us. Lord, open our hearts and open our minds and teach us. Lord, transform us by the renewing power of your word and conform us to the image of the Lord Jesus. That we would be a people in the earth today that would give glory to you, that would shine brightly and be salty in this earth. Father, help us accomplish your divine will and your divine purpose in our lives, in this, our time of visitation on this earth. Father, we thank you for the privilege of being called your children. We ask God that we would walk worthy of that calling for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen. Speak to Zerubbabel. That's what God commanded Haggai, the prophet. Zerubbabel is the rightful heir to the throne of David. Zerubbabel was born in Babylon. So he wasn't born in Judah. He never saw the previous temple. He never saw the glory of the kingdom. He was born in captivity. It's, exactly, it's actually what his name means. 
But yet Zerubbabel was the rightful heir to the throne. The Lord addresses him by his proper title, the governor of Judah, a title bestowed upon him by the Medo-Persian king Darius. Because of Judah's sin and God's judgment, the kingdom lay in ruins. God's judgment came upon his people who would not heed his word nor his warnings. A city, a throne, a temple, and a people fell into destruction. But in his grace, not utterly. God will chasten his people, but he will never cast them utterly away. That's why I can say to those children that they will always be God's special treasure. And I can say that to you, to all of you who are in Christ, that you will always be God's special treasure. Because though God will certainly chasten us in his love, he will never utterly cast us away. That is something that we should remember and latch on to in these very uncertain times that we find ourselves living in today. God's promise of a king and a kingdom that will endure forever and fill the earth remains and endures forever. That promise can never be broken. It will never go away. It is being fulfilled even as we speak now. God was giving Zerubbabel assurance of this. The Lord was giving hope to Zerubbabel and to all the remnant of his people. Hope now and hope for the future. Zerubbabel could have believed that hope for the kingdom was lost under the crushing power of the Babylonians and now the Persians. How could broken Judah rise from this? For all practical purposes, it was humanly impossible. It wasn't possible, humanly speaking. It would not be, though, in human might or human power. It would be by His Spirit, by the Spirit of the Lord, that these things would take place. That God would raise up His people and raise up His house. This is true for us today as we consider the current condition of the church and our nation. What God has promised, He will perform. The impossibilities we see, listen church, this is so important. The impossibilities we see are simply the plans and purposes of God that we cannot see. So don't ever look at an impossible situation and lose hope. Look at it and see it as God's plan and purpose that you can't see yet because it's there. No event in history demonstrates this better than the crucifixion of the Son of God. The destruction of the first temple and rebuilding of the second, which is what's happening in Haggai's day. This is why Haggai comes and gives uh, this word to Zerubbabel and the remnant of Judah. The first temple, the temple of Solomon, had been destroyed. Now the remnant has been brought back from captivity and they are to rebuild the house of the Lord. But the rebuilding of this second temple only foreshadowed the true temple to come. In the crucifixion of Christ, we see the destruction of the true temple. And in his resurrection, we see the eternal temple raised up, never to be destroyed again. The death of Christ appeared so utterly hopeless, especially to those 
void of faith, who were discerning the events they were seeing with their physical eyes and their carnal minds. But God was always in control, bringing about his glorious salvation. That was true then. That is true today. God says, I will shake heaven and earth. Once again, the Lord promises to shake heaven and earth. Two months earlier, through the words of the prophet Haggai, the Lord spoke those words and said, I will shake not only heaven and earth, but land and sea and nations. That's recorded in Haggai chapter 2, verses 6 through 7. And the Lord spoke through the prophet concerning the shaking that he would bring about. The shaking in heaven and the shaking on earth. What is being communicated here to Zerubbabel is that the Lord is in complete control. He can shake heaven and earth because he is the maker of heaven and earth. He holds and upholds all things by his power. This is what Paul writes in his letter to the Colossians concerning Christ. Listen to his words recorded for us in Colossians chapter 1, verse 16 through 17. For by him all things were created that are in heaven and that are on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or principalities or powers. All things were created through him and for him, and he is before all things, and in him all things consist. That phrase, he is before all things, is not talking about just chronology. It means he is above. His power, his majesty, his glory, his rule, his dominion is first. It is above. It is before all things. And in him all things consist. Through Christ and for Christ, all things were created. He is before all things, and in Christ, all things consist. What that literally says is all things are held together in Him. So we see that Christ is literally the power holding all things together in His creation. The Lord is promising to shake the powers of heaven and earth. It is the Lord and his kingdom, not the kingdoms of men who control all things. We are very guilty of reading news and watching news and following the events taking place in our nation and across the globe. And we are lulled into thinking that men are in control of events. But I want to reassure you today that men are not in control of the events taking place. They're participants in the events and they're making choices, some of them, most of them, very wicked and very sinful. But I want to assure you, just as God is assuring Zerubbabel, that he is in control of all things. He not only holds all things together, but when he decides to shake heaven and earth, he will do it. He has done it and he will do it again. And in fact, he is doing it right now so that we are seeing that all things that can be shaken will be shaken. But what God has delivered to us, the kingdom he has established in his earth today, cannot be shaken, and it will never, ever pass away. Sorry, I just lost my place.
The promise to shake heaven and earth was not to scare Zerubbabel, but to reassure him who is actually in control. It should reassure us to know that Christ is literally holding all things together. What seems out of control to us is firmly in his grasp. That means every Russian tank that rolls through Ukraine, the COVID-19 virus, and all of our personal situations and circumstances that we cannot understand, all things are in his wise and firm grip. He holds heaven and earth and he will shake heaven and earth. And he does all for his glorious plan and purpose that he has privileged us to be a part of in giving us life. The very fact that we are just alive. Do you realize what a gift that is? What a privilege it is to have life. Well, evolution didn't give you that life. God gave you that life. The creator gave you that life. And it is a gift we should value Christ will overthrow and destroy the thrones and the strength of nations. This is exactly what he tells Zerubbabel. Listen to the words of the prophet in verse 22. I will overthrow the thrones of kingdoms. I will destroy the strength of the Gentile kingdoms. I will overthrow the chariots and those who ride in them. The horses and their riders shall come down, every one by the sword of his brother. Zerubbabel was the governor of Judah, and he's listening to the word of the Lord. He is the leader of the remnant of people who returned from captivity. And they have come back to their beloved city and their beloved temple, only to find it laying in burnt ruins. It's literally what they returned to. Now remember, by the time Haggai is delivering the word of the Lord to this remnant, they've been there for over 14 years, and they've not been busy about the work of the kingdom. They've been doing their own thing because the work was too hard, too much opposition. So it was just easier to abandon the work of God, their obedience to the Lord, and just do their own thing. Sounds pretty familiar, right? You realize that we're not dealing with anything different today in the world than they were dealing with you know, 2,500 years ago, which is when this was written, 2,500 years ago. You still have people who are called to obedience to the Lord who find it too difficult, too hard, too challenging, so I'm just going to do my own thing, but call it good because I still love Jesus. God says there's a problem with that. And God says there's such a problem with that, and I love you so much that I'm not going to allow you to live in that fantasy land. And so God sent his prophets, and God even sent a Babylonian army and carried his people away captive for seven years. Now they're back. And they're falling into some of the same things. And God sends his prophet in his love. And it's been chasing them, remember, through drought and mildew and blight and, and lack and want. God says, I did that to you to get your attention. Now I've sent my prophet. And I'm giving you my word. And the good news is the people responded. And they began to work. And last week we looked at God's word to them that says... I will bless you. Yes, I have chastised you. Yes, there's been lack. Yes, you've suffered. But from this time forward, God says, I will bless you. And that came as a result of their faithful obedience in returning to what God had originally told them they were to be doing there in the land. 
And so now they return and they see this burnout city and these burnout ruins, and they are powerless. They are a powerless people in terms of kings and kingdoms on the world stage at that time. How are they going to achieve all that God is saying to Zerubbabel? Zerubbabel would not live on this earth long enough to see God's word come to pass. But it, it did come to pass. Everything that God was telling Zerubbabel about overthrowing nations and armies and bringing about the plan and the purpose of God, all of that came to pass and is still coming to pass even today. History reveals that God's word came to pass in amazing detail. The prophecy here in Haggai is much more general in nature. It is reaffirming the familiar, more detailed prophecies of Daniel and Isaiah concerning the rise and fall of specific kingdoms. God declared that he would overthrow the throne of kingdoms, that he would destroy the strength of nations and their armies, and everyone by the sword of his brother. What God was showing Zerubbabel is that the kingdom's rule, the kingdoms ruling this world would destroy themselves and that this was all part of God's plan and purpose coming to pass. And history reveals this is exactly what happened. These Gentile kingdoms conquered one another by the sword while God's people lived under the rule of these successive kings and kingdoms. Since I am the history teacher, let me just give you a thumbnail sketch here of this history because I think it's significant for us to understand this. History is important, not just because I like history, but if we don't know history, we can't learn from our past mistakes, and then we are prone to repeat them. God raised up the Babylonians to take Judah captive. This was the judgment of the Lord on his people. Then the Medo-Persian Empire arose and overthrew the Babylonians, and the Persians were overthrown by the Greeks under Alexander the Great. Alexander dies at a young age and divides his kingdom, his empire, into four between his four generals. The Romans then rise to power after, after the Greeks rule for several centuries. And the Romans take power and they take control of the Greek world around 40 B.C., about 40 years before Jesus is born. And all of this is written by the prophet Daniel centuries before the birth of Christ. Go read the book of Daniel and you'll see. Do you know that scholars thought for many, many years that Daniel was written much later than it was because our, our theologians who run our seminaries or cemeteries, however you want to think about it today, did not believe that Daniel could have actually been written when it was supposed to be written because how could Daniel have predicted history so accurately into such detail? And so for years, they taught men of God coming out of their seminaries that the book of Daniel was written much later and it was just recounting history that they were looking back and seeing. Then archaeology discovered something that proved that Daniel actually was written when the Bible says it was written. Jesus quotes Daniel. And I don't think Jesus would quote the prophet Daniel if the prophet Daniel wasn't really a prophet. I digress, but read the book and see 
that God knows how to predict history because history is his story. He's writing history. He's the author of history. Haggai and Zerubbabel would have been familiar with Daniel's prophecies concerning the four earthly kingdoms and the one kingdom that would come and never be destroyed. That was all in Daniel's prophecies. That was what came from the dream of Nebuchadnezzar and the visions that Daniel had. That indestructible kingdom with Christ the King as its head is here now and we pray it continue to come and to grow and to fill the earth. It is under the power of Rome, the fourth and the greatest empire spoken of by Daniel, that Christ was born. Christ was crucified, died, and was buried. And on the third day, he rose from the dead, all under Roman rule. Rome would go the way of all other kingdoms and be swallowed up by the power of the gospel and the kingdom of Christ. You might say, well, I thought it was the Visigoths and the Vandals who overthrew Rome. Yeah, they did. But why did they? Because God said he would overthrow the kingdoms and the nations and the armies, and he would do it by the sword of their own brothers. In other words, the Gentile nations, the nations destroying nations, overthrowing nations, it was God's plan and purpose that God gave right there to his prophet. And we still see it taking place today. Because God's kingdom is still coming. And the glory of the knowledge of God is still filling the earth. And it will until Jesus comes again. Amen. And don't believe otherwise. Because this is exactly what the Bible teaches us. Christ is the rock cut out without hands that has become a mountain that is filling the earth and a kingdom with no end that cannot be shaken. The kingdom of Christ continues to overcome and destroy the strength of thrones and kingdoms and nations. The kingdom of God and the gospel of Christ will not be stopped until the earth is filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. It is the Lord who causes kings and kingdoms to rise and fall. He caused our nation to rise. There's no doubt about that. And it was a devotion to God and a commitment to the gospel command to disciple the nations that brought about the rise of this very nation we call America. It will be our abandonment of the gospel and of Christ that will result in our fall unless we repent. And don't think that cannot happen. It seems much of America or the church in America has abandoned the gospel of Christ for a gospel of social justice, equity, and inclusion. This is not the gospel, but another. We just read Psalm 99, and it says, God is the one who brings justice and equity. This is not the gospel, this social justice gospel, but another. Only the gospel of Christ will provide true justice. This other gospel of social justice is idolatry, and the idol at the center of it is none other than man himself. This is humanism, human idolatry, and it is diametrically opposed to the gospel of Christ. Haggai was delivering the word of the Lord to a people who had lived under God's judgment for over 70 years because of their idolatry. 
we are seeing the warning signs of God's judgment, of his loving chastening of his people. And we must respond to him in humble repentance. And then we must rise up and faithfully work and obey and see his house, his body, the church, built up for his glory. God is encouraging Zerubbabel that what looks impossible is not. God is encouraging us today that what looks impossible, what looks overwhelming and even hopeless is not. With God, all things are possible. God's promise to fill this earth with the knowledge of the glory of God is being fulfilled right now. Yes, there are enemies opposing us. And there is an ebb and a flow in history and in the battle to disciple the nations. But we continue to fight and work and prevail. For in Christ we have already been assured of victory. Christ has won the victory. The work is finished. What we are doing is is carrying out what God has paved the way for us to do. There is no retreat, for there is no defeat in Christ. In verse 23, it begins with these words, In that day. Now, we understand what day that is, because we understand what God just said previous to that. That day is now. In that day refers to the day when the Lord had overthrown the throne of kingdoms and destroyed the strength of nations and overthrown the armies of men, every one by the sword of his brother. In that day, Christ, the father's servant, will be like a signet ring, precious and chosen. Here, Zerubbabel foreshadows Christ. Remember, Zerubbabel did not live on this earth long enough to see these things come to pass. Since his first advent, even in his birth, Christ was seen as a threat to kings and kingdoms. Herod slaughtered the babies in an attempt to eliminate that threat of his kingdom, or that threat to his kingdom. It did not work. Christ, by the power of the gospel, continues to overthrow the kingdoms of this world. Kings and kingdoms are still threatened by Christ. They still oppose him. And he is still conquering them by the power of the gospel. His church has been commanded to conquer the nations through the power of the gospel. Just as Israel was commanded to go in and take the promised land. We don't have a piece of geography that's measured in miles. What God has given to us is the whole world. We will inherit the earth, the Bible says. This is the inheritance of God's people. The very earth and creation itself. And so we have been commanded to go throughout this earth and disciple the nations, conquer the nations through the power of the gospel. This is our work and this is our warfare. God says, I will make you like a signet ring. Zerubbabel was a prince of Judah. He is a descendant of David and he is in the lineage of Christ. One of the ways that God used Zerubbabel was to bring forth the Messiah through him. God likening Zerubbabel to a signet ring is purposeful to reverse the shame and dishonor from his ancestor, King Jeconiah, who God said he would pluck off if it were a signet ring on his right hand. So in Jeremiah 22, 24, the one who... Zerubbabel had descended from, 
who was a wicked king, God said, if you were a signet ring on my hand, I would pluck it off. That's what he told Zerubbabel's ancestor. This is reminiscent of God coming to Peter, of Christ coming to Peter and, and having Peter confess his love to him three times, one for every time he had denied the Lord. And here God comes to Zerubbabel, whose ancestor was wicked. And God says, if you would have been a signet ring on my hand, I would have plucked you off. And God says to Zerubbabel, he says, I have chosen you. And you are like a signet ring on my hand, precious and chosen. What a beautiful picture of God's affirming love for his children. God is speaking to Zerubbabel, affirming that he is precious to God as a signet ring is precious to the one who wears it. Not, not only is it precious, but it is powerful. It, it wields authority. The signet ring of a, of a king would, would seal with his signet, with his stamp, those things. And they carried the authority of the king. So a letter sealed with the signet of the king carried the very authority of the king because it was sealed with his signet ring. And this is what God is saying to Zerubbabel. You'll be like a signet ring, precious. He's chosen by God to do his will and to accomplish the Lord's divine purpose. And God is speaking to Zerubbabel, but he is speaking of Christ because Zerubbabel never fulfilled any of those in his lifetime on this earth. But he did fulfill it because the Messiah came through Zerubbabel. This is just like God telling Abraham, I will bless all the families of the earth through you. Well, Abraham only lived to see his grandchildren. He didn't live to see the multitude as the sands of the sea and the stars in the sky. Yet they came and he saw them by faith. And this is how Zerubbabel is seeing what God is promising here. He's speaking of Christ. God will use Zerubbabel to accomplish these prophetic plans, but not directly. God is prophesying through Haggai those things that will come to pass through the promised seed who would come from Zerubbabel, the Lord Jesus Christ. The Lord used Zerubbabel not only to build the second temple, but to bring forth the true eternal temple who is Christ the Lord, the King of Kings. Zerubbabel would not see these promises come to pass in his lifetime. It would be by faith that he would see and be assured that God, in his own time and in his own way, would bring all to pass. For God had declared it by his word. That same thing is true for us today. We know the promise of God, but we also see and feel the decline that has been steadily taking place in the church and in our nation and across the Western world, the part of the world that embraced the gospel. And it was the gospel that caused that world to rise up and to give the blessing and the prosperity that the world has known. That did not come about because of men. That came about because of Christ and his gospel. And now across those very lands that once embraced the gospel and prospered under the gospel, we see the gospel in decline because the church is in decline. Because the church is turning to man and the world instead of turning back to God. 
It has been especially prevalent in the culture and in the church during our lifetime. The work of restoration, even reformation, is not quick and it is not easy, but it is absolutely necessary. We see with alarm the grim realities around us. Who would have thought just months ago, a few short years ago, that we would see the warfare taking place across Europe right now? Many are seeking answers to right the wrongs, but most are looking in the wrong places. It's not that men seek to destroy the world, they seek to control it. And if destruction will bring them control, then they'll destroy. They seek to control it, to rebuild it in their preferred image. From dictatorial autocrats like Putin, to favored or hated media outlets, and the politicians in all the halls of government across the world, men seek to control what they can from their small corner to the whole wide world, if able, if possible. This is the heart of sinful men who seek to take the place of God so that he may have the illusion of control, but in reality he has none. Rebuilding the ruins of what was once great is not easy or quick. But it must be done. God is raising up a people to work. And we must each decide if we are going to, to join him in his mission. The people God will raise up to do his work will cross generations. If you're hearing my words today and you feel the pull of the Holy Spirit to be a part of fighting the good fight and joining the work of rebuilding the ruins of what sin has destroyed, then you are one of many that God is raising up. There is no doubt we have all come into the kingdom for such a time as this. Obedience is calling us. Our work and so our faith encompasses all things in all of life. Seven days a week, 24 hours a day, year in and year out until life brings us to death. We are called to faithfully and obediently work and do all for His glory. That matters not whether you're a a shoemaker, a plumber, or president of the United States, or pastor of the local church. Whatever vocation God places you in, whatever gift He gives you, you are to do it to His glory, and it is all for His glory. This is not just our work. This is our warfare. Our work is to wage a spiritual war in these bodies on this earth, even into the heavenlies. Our battlefield stretches across all the areas and all the years of our life. Our victory is already won, but make no mistake, the battle is real and it still rages all around us all the time. Our work and our warfare is from generation to generation, just as the blessings promised by God are from generation to generation to generation, world without end. We see that the church has failed in many ways in this regard. The church has embraced eschatology that has the church looking for their soon escape so that they never make long-term strategies to disciple the nations. It has conformed the world and the world it has conformed to the world and to world philosophies to unsuccessfully win over the masses. We want to make God more acceptable to the world, thinking the world will flood into our churches. But all we become 
is a laughingstock to the world. We become irrelevant to the world because we have compromised the gospel and the only power to save men. We are called to trust in the power of the gospel, not the latest marketing strategy borrowed from the world, but promoted by the church. We have not prepared the generations well, and the fruit of that reality is showing. We have allowed our children to understand success as defined by the world, where faith is no longer necessary for success. Yet throughout the scripture, success is measured by one's faith in obedience to the Lord. It is a devotion to God above and beyond the expense of all other things. There is no such thing as a sacred and secular divide in life. It is a destructive myth that says our life is divided into a secular and a spiritual or a sacred sphere. Faith in God is not just another sphere of life. Our faith is the beginning and the end of all things in all of our life. All of life is spiritual. All of life is sacred at all times. Whether I'm unclogging my toilet or whether I am standing behind this pulpit preaching the gospel, everything I do is spiritual and sacred and goes to lend itself to God's plan and God's purpose in the earth. No matter how great it is, no matter how small it is. The Bible doesn't say do the great things to the glory of God. It says whatever you do in all things, do them to the glory of God. The world doesn't care about our faith and it cannot see this truth. And as disciples of Jesus, we must be prepared for how much that truth may cost us. For the world will make no provision for it. We saw this during the pandemic. I don't care what your faith is. I don't care what your belief is. You're going to take that vaccine or you might as well pack up and leave right now. We often justify putting God somewhere other than first because we seem to be convinced that God is some doting grandfather who will cheer us on as we pursue everything in life but him. After all, he'll understand, won't he? Will he? Look around and see what's happening. The Lord is long-suffering, not willing that any should perish, but we know, in fact, that many will perish because they will. They will not hold the Lord in his proper place. They will not hear his word. They will not heed his warnings. And if they persist, they will perish. In the church today, the tendency is to resist talking so bluntly about sin. We do not like to think of relegating God to a lesser priority so we don't think about it. We live in denial. We're all very guilty of that. We would never say that God is less than. We may not even think about it that way. We say things like, well, life just happens. Right? Yes, it does. Which is why we must be purposeful in not allowing the lesser to swallow up the greater. Or we ourselves will find ourselves being swallowed up. To see proof that God has become a lesser priority, look around at all that is taking place. We have misplaced our priorities. Jesus is Lord. 
You do realize that. That has meaning. And that means that he cannot and will not take a subservient place. He will not. He cannot. He is Lord. He is first among all things. He is above all things. We say one thing, but we live another. And we all must repent of that sin. God loves his people enough to chasten them. We should be thankful for that. Haggai is speaking words to the words of the Lord to his people to remind them that God had chastened them in order to instruct them and motivate them to obedience. And when their obedience took root, God said to them, I will bless you. And the blessings of God are still here for his children who will walk in obedience to him. We are we are to be about the very same work today, the work of building up the house of the Lord. The psalmist writes, the Lord is building Jerusalem, and so he is. When we went through our study of the book of Revelation, remember at the end of the book, John is given the vision of the holy Jerusalem descending out of heaven, adorned as a bride, because it is the bride of the Lamb. It is his church. And when the psalmist writes, the Lord is building Jerusalem, the Lord is really and truly building Jerusalem. He has since the first man was created, and he will until the Son of God sets his feet back on this earth one day. We are his holy Jerusalem that will one day join him and those who have gone before us. And we all will descend from heaven adorned as a bride to continue his rule and reign on this earth forever. In Christ, we can be assured of victory. Christ is building Jerusalem right now. You are part of, you are the living stones that make up that holy Jerusalem. And you will either die and go and meet the Lord, or if something really unexpected happens, the Lord could return with a shout and we would all be translated up into the air to meet Him, only to return to the earth to rule and reign. Because we're not going to go live in heaven forever. Heaven is coming to earth and we'll rule and reign on a heavenly earth forever with Christ our King. In Christ we can be assured of victory. If you are not trusting on Christ, then trust on Him now and be saved. You say, is it that easy? Yeah, that's what the Bible says. So I'm going to go with the Bible. Call upon the name of the Lord and you will be saved. At his table, each week, we celebrate his salvation. And we celebrate his victory. The victory he bought for us with his very body and his very blood. And now, you are his body. And you have been made holy by his cleansing blood. And he has done that. He has saved us. He has given us life and power and authority so that we would obey him and go into this world and conquer the nations through the power of the gospel, make disciples, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to obey all that he has commanded us. This is our commission. This is our work. This is our warfare. What a glorious thing.
Welcome to the table and welcome to Jesus. We'll all take the elements together and then we'll all eat and we'll all drink together. Let's all stand. I'm going to give you your charge. God is not a respecter of persons. He loved his people. That's why he spoke through the prophet to that remnant. And he loves us today, which is why he has given us his word and given us his spirit. That we too may hear and know his word. The Lord is graceful. That means he will chasten us in his love. And we should desire that. And I believe that is exactly what is taking place even now. I believe the Lord is chastening His church. I believe very gently right now. But our response to His consistent loving call and conviction will determine what level of chastening will be required to motivate us to obedience. And hopefully it is our love for Him that motivates us. He is a jealous God. And we assume to our demise that He does not care what place He has in our life. We may fool ourselves, but God will not be fooled and He will certainly not be mocked. The warning signs of our current judgment are all around us. Humble repentance with obedience is the only response that will avert a greater and more harsh chastisement or judgment from him. This is a hard word, but it is necessary to, av to avoid an even harder reality that may come to us one day. But in the midst of all of it, do you know what the Bible commands us to, to do? Rejoice. And we are to rejoice because Jesus is Lord and he rules and he reigns over the power of nations and kingdoms. And we are his people. We are the people of his kingdom. The kingdom that cannot be shaken. The kingdom that will never end. And he has given to us the privilege to see that kingdom built and advanced in this earth. In our lifetimes. Through our very lives. So church. Let's be faithful. Let's rise up with joy and love in our hearts and do the work and wage the war that God has called us to for His glory. But not just that. Look at all these children here. I'm 61 years old today. I don't have that many years left on this earth. But look at these children and think about their children and their children. What kind of world are we leaving to them if all we want to do is just hurry up and get through life and escape the, the tribulation of this world and get to heaven to start celebrating, what are we leaving behind for the generations? And far too many generations have done that, which has brought us to where we are today. So don't be ashamed to tell people, stop looking for your escape and get to work and start waging war. Because that's what needs to happen right now in the earth so that these children and their children will continue being stepping stones for the glorious kingdom 
that will come in earnest one day when Christ returns to this earth. Amen? Now may the God of peace himself sanctify you completely, and may your whole spirit and soul and body be kept blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. Amen. The Lord be with you.